3: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
2: Welcome to Stuff to
4: Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
4: And yeah, my name is Julie Douglas.
1: Julie, we are always discussing outrageous natural experiences, natural experiences that can color the mind with the feelings of the paranormal the ultimate in all of these experiences is is the one that we spend a great deal of time thinking about is death Mm -hmm. my dad always said everybody does it so there couldn't be that much to it but (laughs) and and to a certain extent that's that's true right there it's one of the the few things that is certain in any life until we reach some point where we're actually able to cheat death entirely we're all going to go through this at some point or well, it depends how you look at it, either go through or in there. Mm-hmm. And we have devoted just countless centuries, just as long as humans have been able to comprehend and ruminate on their mortality, we've been trying to figure out how this works and how best to prepare for death.
4: Or, you know, we have tried to divert our attention away from it, right? Right. And when I think about diversions, one of the things that comes to mind is altering our minds, right, in the form of drugs,
1: well, that's that's one uh, certainly one of the major interpretations of <laughs> right. uh, of the use of things like psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And that's something we're going to discuss here because on one hand there is definitely the heavy recreational view of psychedelic substances the 1960s the counterculture uh, counterculture the idea of just hippies staring dreamily into the sky mm-hmm. or if you go to a concert and you see some young person with giant eyes staring at their hands the entire time mm-hmm. you know that's very, girl with
4: the kaleidoscope eyes
1: right mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you may think, well this person is clearly not getting anything out of this experience this is just clearly an escapist experience that they're enjoying but then the other side of psychedelic experience is rich history that we see in various cultures and mm-hmm. the use of them as a ceremonial tool, as a religious yeah. tool to have some sort of a heightened experience that will gain supposed insight into what life means, what death means and all these questions. Right. And then there's science, Right.
4: And then there is science, yes. And so what we're talking about here is the intersection of, I guess what you could say, uh, hallucinogenic medicine mm-hmm. and the idea of end-of-life care. Right. Recently, there was uh, an article in the New York Times about this, a really great article called How Psychedelic Drugs Can Help Patients Face Death. And we're going to talk about this. But before we talk about that, we should probably talk about other therapeutic uses for hallucinogens.
1: Now, I have never gone to the doctor and had a hallucinogenic prescribed to me. Uh, So in in what cases, uh, this is not something that is actually going to show up at your local drugstore. No. But there have been a number of experiments, a number of clinical studies to see what uses they may have. Because clearly they have a powerful effect on our mind and the Mm -hmm. way the mind works. And that's at the root of everything. So needless to say, doctors have looked at that and said, well, there's got to be something here. Perhaps there is something here that we can utilize to treat other conditions.
4: Yeah, they have actually found that ecstasy or MDMA, as it's known and we'll talk about a little bit more further, is an effective treatment for severe PTSD. There are also studies of people with cluster headaches who took LSD and reported their symptoms were greatly diminished. And psychedelics have been used for alcoholism and other addictions. Now, a lot of this has been off the radar because, obviously, uh, illegal drugs are sort of persona non grata here in the United States. So it's been very hard for scientists to be able to research these without a lot of different constraints. So recently, the last 30, 40 years people have been giving a little bit more uh, scientific heft to this idea that we can use these drugs as therapy.
1: So we inevitably have to turn to the character of Timothy Leary here, Mm -hmm. who, um, I don't know, do you watch the TV show Mad Men?
4: Well, yeah, I've caught it before. And I I understand that this week there was a foray into LSD, right? Right.
1: And Timothy Leary shows up.
4: Oh, wow. Okay. All right. In the show, obviously, he actually entered the great void himself in the late 90s, but we're talking about a psychologist, a writer, and one of psychedelic drugs' most ardent supporters. He conducted experiments at Harvard University with something called psilocybin, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase, turn on, tune in, and drop out. That's the guy who uttered
1: it. There's also an album by that name. It's like a spoken word, like psychedelic guidance album it's actually pretty cool worth checking out if you're into that kind of music Mm -hmm. it's been copiously sampled over the years leary is a very interesting character obviously an educated man an expert in his field prior to his engagement with psychedelic substances it was around 1955 and uh, his wife committed suicide and left him with a school aged son and a school aged daughter. Mm -hmm. So he has this going on in his life. And then at age 38, he goes on this trip to Spain. He suffers this mysterious illness, and just without the aid of any kind of drug or what have you, he has this mind-altering experience, this moment that he claims really allowed him to sort of see through the limitations of his perspectives of the world before then. And it's in the years following that that he actually begins experimenting with psychedelic substances. He begins to incorporate it into his work and Mm -hmm. explore the possibilities of it and things as they tend to do as we've discussed with good old lily the dolphin Uh, uh,
4: right 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 when
1: you bring lsd into a study especially back in these days Mm -hmm. it has a tendency to sort of get out of control a little
4: bit yeah there's a lot of things spiraling out of control mainly this is because the researchers at the time especially john c lily right with Mm -hmm. the dolphins are taking the lsd so this may be changing their perspective a little bit and certainly It is darkening the doorsteps of science in a way that feels like this drug is not being given sort of its due diligence because it's now being associated with counterculture, especially with Leary, because he really kind of took it up, became a celebrity. And, you know, there are a lot of drug raids.
1: G. Gordon Liddy arrested him.
4: Did he really? Yeah, he was the,
1: led one of the raids, yeah. I did not know that. Um, um, the did, Concord Prison Experiment was one of the, the big ones with him. Right?
4: Yeah, but in, but there's this other part of Leary that is really trying to look at this diligently and try to really apply scientific method to this. But then he's got all the craziness of the other part of his life that's sort of, I would say, putting a, a dark cloud over his efforts.
1: Well, and also he just becomes increasingly less academic and more spiritual as the days progress and as the years progress. In his later life he's making the rounds, he's giving speeches but he's more concerned with the evolution of human consciousness and and he was a big advocate of cybernetics. He really thought cybernetics were uh, going to be the key to our future and really he's he's right on that.
4: I guess what we should talk about is the Concord Prison Experiment because that's where you can see his bias really seeping in.
1: Right, they're testing psychedelic substances specifically they're testing psilocybin on a group of 32 prisoners to see if they can adjust their recidivism rates.
4: Right. So recidivism rate is that the person is going to be let out of jail and then they will do something else which will land them back into jail. And as we know, the recidivism rate has always been historically high. Like at this point in this study, it was 60% recidivism rate.
1: Yeah. So he's interested, can you... Basically, the question here is by applying these psychedelic substances to these prisoners, can you change them? Can you make them a less violent person, a person that's less likely to engage in criminal behavior. I mean, you're talking about taking somebody who is a prisoner, a person with a criminal past, and is statistically likely to engage in crime again.
4: Right. And he reports that it definitely helps them, that they become less antisocial, etc. But the fact of the matter is, is, it did not really affect the prisoners at all. That rate mm-hmm. of recidivism was the same, although he claimed that there was like a 20% reduction.
1: Yeah, there was a little tweaking of the, the the interpretation of the data in the study. was made to lean more in favor of the findings.
4: Again, he saw himself in a very specific way that clouded his judgment, I think. Here's a great quote. He's Says we saw ourselves as anthropologists from the 21st century inhabiting a time module set somewhere in the dark ages of the 1960s. On this space colony, we were attempting to create a new paganism and a new dedication to life as art.
1: And that's from the study itself. That's-
4: no, no, that's him as a general. Okay. Uh, no, 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 that's sort of the, one of his general mission statements. But I think it gives a good idea of why he might have gone off the path of scientific method there. Okay, so we, we mentioned this guy. We mentioned Leary because he kind of helped to put the kibosh on funding for hallucinogens uh, because obviously this got all interwoven with counterculture. Nixon at one point called him the most dangerous person alive.
1: Yeah, yeah, clearly that was the case.
4: Funding dried up. We didn't really get to have a good chance to study the effects of hallucinogens as a therapy, as a mode of therapy. Right. So let's talk about some of the drugs that are now currently being researched. And let's also talk about this guy named Stanislav Grof, because he's really important and that he, I think, was taking up where Leary left off in terms of sort of falling off the, the map of the scientific method.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, we have psilocybin. Uh, and this is a hallucinogenic substance that is obtained from certain types of mushrooms that are indigenous to tropical and subtropical regions of South America, Mexico, and the United States. In the sort of Georgia, Tennessee area where I grew up, this is mostly known as something that would grow on cow patties out in pastures. So yeah, you I was have, about to say,
4: like a lot of teenagers hanging out yeah, in the dark.
1: Yeah, trying to steal cow pies and and see what they can harvest from them. So these are naturally occurring substances. Mm-hmm. Then you have MDMA, which is synthetic. Okay, This is a psychoactive drug, and it's chemically similar to methamphetamine and hallucinogenic mescaline. And it produces feelings of increased energy, euphoria, emotional warmth, and distortions in time, perception, and tactile experiences. The last three of those also apply to the uh, psilocybin.
4: Right, right. I was going to say, and they, they're very helpful in reducing anxiety and enhancing self-awareness as well as empathy, which is really important, it turns out, when you are dealing with end-of-life care. So this guy, Stanislav Groff, much of today's research is actually predicated on some of his work with psychedelic medicine. In the early 60s, he began giving the drug psilocybin to cancer patients at the Spring Grove State Hospital near Baltimore and documenting their effects. And he described cancer patients who were completely clenched with fear, who under the influence of LSD or DPT mm-hmm. experienced relief from the terror of dying. That is really important because this again is where our current researchers are looking, you know, at in the past. They're not looking at Leary, but they're looking at this guy to say maybe there is something to this. Maybe there is a different way that we can approach end-of-life care, because it's one thing to say that, you know, we all are going to die at one point, but it is certainly another thing to say, you know what, you have six months to 18 months to live. So that's an entirely different situation. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how these drugs could be very beneficial.
1: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And we're back. So if one is staring down death and one knows that it is imminent uh, sometime in the next few months, the next few years, how can substances such as MDMA and psilocybin actually aid the patient and sort of smooth the transition into death?
4: Okay, well, there are a couple of people that in the New York Times article they focused on, and in fact, there's a documentary out there, too, that talks about this guy named Charles Grobe and Pam Sakuda, who is the patient that the article and some of his studies center around. Pam Sakuda, 55 years old, she learns, or she learned, I should say, that she had stage 4 metastatic cancer. She was then given 6 to 12 months to live, and she actually ended up living... Four years, but about two years into it, she sought out help for the anxiety and depression that accompanied her feeling, her constant feeling that the other shoe was about to drop. So she found out about the study being conducted by Charles Grobe. He's a psychiatrist and a researcher at Harbor Harbor UCLA Medical Center, who at the time is giving psilocybin to end-stage cancer patients to see if it would allay their fears. She was given psychological tests to establish that she was psychologically sound, but also another test, to to kind of see what her level of depression and anxiety was. And uh, she was given a placebo during one session, And in the second session, she was giving the psilocybin. Now, that session lasted for about six hours. She wore headphones that piped in different music and nature sounds. And she also had black eye shades on, and that was meant to encourage her to look inward. And I mentioned all of this because in a little while, we'll talk about how this setting is really important. At the four-hour point, she began to cry because she started to really empathize with her husband about what his feelings would be when she passed on. Mm-hmm. And then she says that she released all of this well of emotion and all of this energy that she had been putting toward her situation. And she began to look at it completely differently. And she came out of that session really feeling like she could approach death in a positive light, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And her husband even says that she, she had a completely remarkable change in her demeanor. Because remember, she's been living with this condition for two years now. And again, feeling like that other shoe was going to drop. And this one session completely changed her perspective.
1: And a huge component of it seems to be her ability to empathize more with her husband and what he's experiencing. And sort of see the situation outside of herself.
4: Right, what she saw is, very specifically, she saw that she was robbing her present mm-hmm. with these thoughts of the future. And you can say that we all do that on some level during the day.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it comes back right back around to some of the things that we've been saying and things that have been said in Buddhist philosophy for, for ages. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that so much of our suffering is tied to worrying about the past and fretting over the future and focusing on self. And those are huge obstacles to overcome in the best of circumstances, If we're facing the end of life, they can be even more insurmountable. What appears to be happening is that we see that focus on self fade Mm -hmm. under this uh, substance as well as the worrying over the future. And instead, she's putting more focus on what is happening in the present and what other people that are close to her are feeling.
4: Another good example that the article points out is Lori Reamer, a 48-year-old survivor of adult-onset leukemia. Okay, she's surviving. She knows at this point that she's in remission, Mm -hmm. but still her life is going to be cut short. Yeah, She she knows she's
1: got like a decade or two decades remaining.
4: Yeah. She said that she was fine when she thought she was near death. Mm -hmm. It was when she went into remission that she really became obsessed with, okay, well, when is this going to happen? And and really having a lot of anxiety about it, intense fear and anxiety around relapse Mm -hmm. and death. Maybe that's because she'd survived the first bout, and so it felt, I'm sure there were a lot of psychological factors that made her feel like, oh, this, this may happen again. I may not be so lucky. She participated in a study at Johns Hopkins University where Roland Griffiths was administering psilocybin at a higher level than Grobe was to see if he could elicit any mystical insights to help patients with their conditions. And Reamer said when she underwent that she said that her mind became like a series of rooms and she could go in and out of these rooms with remarkable ease. In one room there was the grief her father experienced when Reamer got leukemia, and another her mother's grief, and in another her children's and yet another room was her father's perspective on raising her. And She says, quote, I was able to see things through his eyes and through my mother's eyes and through my children's eyes. I was able to see what it had been like for them when I was so sick. And this is someone who went into this as an agnostic. Mm -hmm. She came out of it saying, I now have the distinct sense that there's so much more, so many different states of being. I have the sense that death is not the end, but just part of a process, a way of moving into a different sphere, a different way of being. That in and of itself is pretty amazing that she had that perspective change, uh, but Griffiths, the person who administered the substance, had said that for 14 months after participating in a psilocybin study, that was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology, I believe, it was last year, 94% of subjects said that it was one of the five most meaningful experiences of their lives, and 39% said it was the most meaningful experience. Wow! Yeah. So it kind of makes me wonder, well, what exactly is happening in the brain when this is going on? Because obviously this has a lot to do with how these people are perceiving life now.
1: Well, luckily, as we've discussed on other podcasts, we are able to look inside the brain Mm -hmm. and get an idea of what's going on. There's a psychiatrist at uh, Imperial College London by the name of David J. Nutt. And he and his team used an MRI to scan healthy volunteers dosed on psilocybin in order to capture this transition from a normal waking consciousness to this psychedelic state. They found that during these states of quote-unquote unrestrained consciousness that there was a deactivation of regions of the brain that interface our senses and our perception of -hmm. self, Mm -hmm. which falls right in line with what we were talking about with her description of the way it felt and with the idea that our obsession with self, our ego, our need to place ourselves at the center of this story are tied in with our suffering, especially as we approach death.
4: Yeah, and I did see that one of the regions that was dimmed was the anterior cingulate cortex. And Mm -hmm. we've actually talked about that quite a bit. I think most recently we were talking about envy, and we were talking about one study in which they saw that people who were experiencing envy were... Actually, you were seeing these parts of the brain, the anterior cingulate cortex, where pain is processed, Mm -hmm. lighting up. So that we know that this part of the brain perceives pain, even if it's emotional pain. It's the same place that also processes physical pain. So it's interesting to see that that would go offline here as well. But another part of this that is also very intriguing and that researchers wanted to try to get at was why patients were able to hold on to this feeling, this memory, for so long after having just one experience with these drugs. And it turns out that encoding the experience is really, really important here, and that's what the researchers are doing. They're following up with the patients for weeks and weeks afterward, and they're dissecting what happened, and they're talking about the memories. And just like you would do that in, with, say, a trip that you took, um, it begins to really form these long-term associations. So,
1: A physical trip.
4: Uh, yes, yeah. yes, I should say. Let's say, you. yes, you took a, a trip to Paris, and mm-hmm. you kept talking about it with, say, your significant other. Then you've got the blueprint of that memory, and the same thing is happening with, with the, um, <laughs> the psychological trip that these patients are taking.
1: Really, the whole experiment here reminds me a lot of travel and how the memory is encoded. I think about any trip that I take, a trip to another city. Let's say I'm going to Paris, France. And I've never been to Paris, France before. I would ideally want to put some research in beforehand, Mm -hmm. figure out where I'm going to go, what I hope to get out of this trip, Mm -hmm. what I hope to gain from the experience. Okay. Then go on the trip. And then when I get back, process it, be it scrapbooking, writing some blogs about it, talking about it with people. But I go into this uh, trip with a certain expectation, and I leave it with this aim of processing it and learning from it.
4: Okay. So I hear a little bit of priming going on.
1: Right. Right. And that's what they're talking about here. It's not just a, let's dose them up and see what happens. Mm -hmm. They're talking about, let's prepare them for this. Let's set the the room up right. Let's make sure they're... Items to remind them of people they love, mm-hmm. that we have the, the music and the ambience is appropriate. And then after the experience, let's discuss and let's see what we can learn from this and then move forward with it.
4: Yeah, and the priming thing is really important here because they are talking to these patients about seeking relief from anxiety and depression. And they are mm-hmm. saying that you want to administer this drug. And what we're hoping for you to do is to be able to conquer your fears, allay your fears. And so already, and we've already seen this from the placebo podcast that we did, that even when you sometimes talk to a doctor, your symptoms will be reduced just by the very act of making an appointment or talking to someone. Mm -hmm. So already they are primed to have this experience. And this is really important because there are limitations to this to to this sort of drug therapy, right? And I was thinking about this. There's a book called Rational Mysticism by John Horgan. It's really great. And he talks really about inducing these various states of being. And we've talked about him myriad of times. But anyway, he is talking about One experiment, and this is a Leary experiment, by the way. And it's at the Miracle of Marsh Chapel, and it's in 1962. It's a double-blind study, which is a good thing, right? It's called the Good Friday Study. They have 10 divinity students who are given the psilocybin, and another 10 were given a placebo. And the Good uh, Friday service, they're actually in the basement of this church, is is piped to them while they're in the basement, okay? Mm -hmm. So these are divinity students. They are primed to have some sort of experience where they feel closer to God. That's what they're hoping the outcome is. Mm -hmm. But what they find is that eight of those ten divinity students who got the psilocybin have not great trips here. Like, they have some enjoyable moments, but they're kind of having some problems with reality. And part of this reason is because, again, the setting and the priming, they're not... Quite there because they have another 10 students that are looking at them like they're complete animals Mm -hmm. or wondering what's going on or because they really don't know what's happening. They don't know these other people are being dosed. Mm -hmm. So they just think they're being crazy and they start kind of poking fun at them. So you're not in a room where you're by yourself, you have headphones on, you're looking inward. That's really important. And I think that's why we should probably note that so far the very new research about this at least of late, has been successful because it is in in these conditions that are carefully created and you can't just go out, I guess my point is, and go into a, a, you know, pick out a cow patty and hope to have this
0: experience that's going to reduce your fears. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love.
1: It's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai,
3: there's joy in every journey.
1: Yeah, Buddhist and at one point psychedelic experimenter Alan Watts has a really fascinating quote on the matter. He said, psychedelic experience is only a glimpse of genuine mystical insight, but a glimpse which can be matured and deepened by the various methods of meditation in which drugs are no longer necessary or useful. If you get the message, hang up the phone. For psychedelic drugs are simply instruments like microscopes, telescopes, and telephones. The biologist does not sit with eye permanently glued to the microscope. He goes away and works on what he has seen. Which I think is a wonderful quote that fits nicely with these research approaches. Mm -hmm. Because if you just pick up a telescope and you know nothing about the cosmos and you just look into the sky, it's going to be pretty, yeah, but you're not going to learn anything. There's not going to be anything to really grasp other than, whoa, that was kind of neat. It's like looking through a kaleidoscope. But ideally, you would want to know what you're looking at, and you would want to process it afterwards. And that's what Watts was talking about here.
4: Yeah, and Rational Mysticism also talked about a guy named David Nichols. He's the chairman at the Department of Medicinal Chemistry at Purdue University. Mm -hmm. And he's conducted a number of experiments with MSDM, that's ecstasy. But he has concerns about its toxic effects in cases of repeated doses mm-hmm. because we know that there are animal studies that bear out evidence that repeat doses can damage serotonin receptors. So again, it's not just something that you... <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is kids don't feel like this is something that you need to go out into. and and explore um
1: yeah we're not uh, advocating the use of these substances at all certainly recreationally yeah
4: yeah so again the research is in its very early stages and the article does bring up a very good point it wonders whether this type of therapy is ever going to really come to fruition given that drug companies could give two dimes about it There's, there's no money really in something that can be obtained from nature
1: Yeah, so certainly, I mean, as far as psilocybin is concerned, Mm -hmm. because it's the kind of thing that you can cultivate, on your own. And if it was legalized, then everyone, well, not everyone, but certain portions of the population would simply cultivate it. And uh, you would probably, I guess, buy it at your local farmer's market. And then where's the cut for big farm, right?
4: Well, although, as we have seen with herbal remedies, Mm -hmm. that does have a a bit of a market too. So maybe there's a chance for that to be marketed to people. But then there's also the problem that there's illegal drug use and all that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's say that in the future, there is the possibility of this. This completely changes the, the face of end of care. Giving or or even hospice, right? Right. You could have this administered to you by a hospice worker or go into a clinic and have it
1: administered to you. Yeah, we should also though, not pretend that individuals in hospice care are not, you know, you don't have people dying up to their gills in painkillers. I mean, it's not like that we're, we're hesitant to administer powerful drugs to individuals who are dying, and nor should we. I think it's important to stress that. I don't know.
4: What, to sort of say, like, yes, we are administering
1: well, yeah, like say you, morphine, know, morphine, you know, morphine,
4: right? So, in other words, you could administer another drug that would be beneficial to someone, right? Because yeah, we're talking I mean, it's, about it's the end
1: of, if you're talking, especially very end of life care. Not yeah. just uh, I'm staring down my last few years of life, but I am on my deathbed. Yeah, different rules apply, you know.
4: Well, and here's where the gray area starts to come in. Um, you know, who can have it? Who can't? Do you have to undergo psychological evaluation if you're terminally ill? Patient seeking comfort. What about chronic pain? You know, what if you're not terminally ill, but you have horrible chronic pain? These are the sort of questions that start to arise when you talk about um, using something that is illegal.
1: Well, um, in the New York Times article, they mentioned one of the possibilities. Does it mean that everyone over the age of 75 gets to use it?
4: Right, right, right. Which
1: which reminds me of a Patton Oswalt bit about different rules that apply after each birthday. And it was something like after 90, you you're legally allowed to kill a person. Because if you're 90 and you can kill somebody, with your bare hands, I think was the rule. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I can see the reasoning there. I mean, it's like you reach 90 years old, you've accomplished a lot, you've suffered through a lot. Maybe you get to have one free strangulation. Maybe you get to experiment a little with these substances now that you're in the clear.
4: Well, and this always you're points... you
1: land, really.
4: This always points back to cannabis, too, and all the debates about that, about whether or not we should legalize drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, are we hamstringing ourselves by making them illegal, Will things really turn into a crazy maelstrom of drug-laden activity if we were to do that? I don't know. Anyway, it, it does bring that up, uh, that debate up once again. But in, in any case, it does kind of remind me that in order to get to these altered states, it doesn't necessarily have to be through drugs, as you talked about. There are other ways to enter into this, and we talked about lucid dreaming as a way to, to gain right. perspective. Even traveling, we've talked about it as being a completely decentering experience that can change the way that you frame reality for yourself, and even the overview effect. We talked about that mm-hmm. about astronauts glimpsing the Earth as they were returning, and having these epiphanies that we were all one big humanity tootsie roll.
1: Yeah, I mean, and then uh, you know, roll into that meditation, various forms of meditation that are practiced in various traditions. Even fiction. I'm a big supporter of make stuff up if necessary. Pick and choose from the cosmic buffet, see what you like, fill in the gaps with uh, your own creations, and try applying that. I'm not saying it'll cure everything in your approach to death, but it couldn't hurt. As we we're discussing, though, the use of psychedelic substances on the deathbed, it's interesting to point out that, uh, first of all, Aldous Huxley, the author, yeah, on his deathbed asked his wife to inject 100 micrograms of LSD into his muscle tissue. And she obliged, and that was in 1963. Mm-hmm. He died in his home that way and of course leary was (laughs) probably (laughs) the biggest fan of psychedelic experiences and knew that he was dying he uh, was dying of prostate cancer Mm -hmm. so here's a quote from him on the matter he says i'm looking forward to the most fascinating experience in life which is dying i've been writing about self-directed dying for 20 years you've got to approach your dying the way you live your life with curiosity with hope with fascination with courage and with the help of your friends. So there you have it. It's a fascinating area of discussion. A lot of gray area there as well. It's frightening to think about because we're talking about death.
4: Yeah, it's not the feel-good sort of thing, yeah. right? But again, it does, you know, we all are going to approach it at some point too, but it does really change the stakes when you know what your death sentence is. And certainly... Nobody likes to suffer or see others suffer, so it's an interesting topic to look into. And I
1: think it's important to look at these psychedelic substances in a frame of reference that is a little departed from the criminal, legal, fun, not fun uh, you know, mess up your life, stay normal sort of dichotomies uh-huh. that uh, that are so often referenced.
4: All right. Shall we look at some psychedelic mail from our psychedelic robot?
1: Yes. Let's bring it over. All right. First of all, and this is a response to our plant communication episode, but it ties in loosely with this because we mentioned uh, at the, I think the start of the podcast, if we were to die and become reincarnated as a yes. plant, what would we choose? And Chris writes in and says, Hey, Robert and Julie, I just listened to two of your podcasts. For the plant communication one, I was surprised you wanted to be the plants you were. If I were given the choice, I would want to be a Californian red oak. I think that is their name. The ones that grow hundreds of feet tall uh, and uh, really big so you can drive cars through them. Not only would you have a nice long life, you would be protected by humans and have a nice view. Well, you couldn't see anything, but it would be cool. Uh, anyway, so... That's Chris's thoughts on it. I don't know. I wouldn't want to be a tree in the next life that someone drives a car through and destroys my root system. But uh, that's just me. I'm still sticking with Moss on that one.
4: All right. Okay.
1: We also did an episode on lucid dreaming, which we referenced in this podcast, and I have a few responses to that. Donald writes in and says, hey, guys, I just finished listening to your lucid dreaming episode and wanted to add to it. I've been interested in lucid dreaming for years now and have on numerous occasions lucid dreamed myself. You mentioned briefly various medications that could affect dreams, but failed to touch on one in particular. Kalia Zakatakichi is an herbal supplement used by shamans to induce lucid and or prophetic dreams, commonly intended to help find answers that may be plaguing an individual or their tribe. It is often smoked in a cigarette with equal parts Kalia and tobacco. In fact, lucid dreaming in general seems to be very common shamanistic ritual practice around the world. Love the show. Thanks. All right, cool. We also heard from Brian. Brian writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. Really enjoying your podcast. Keep up the great work. On the subject of flying in dreams, you mentioned that most people fly in a stiff Superman pose while dreaming. I've never had it that easy. To get off the ground required vigorous flapping of my wide-stretched arms, (laughs) and works much better if I start off running downhill. Takeoff feels as if I'm swimming in molasses and seems to take all of my strength to pull off. Once I'm off the ground, I can pick up speed and fly very easily, but still always using my arms as if they were wings just thought you might be interested in a different flying technique. Thanks for the great show. And uh, so there you go, a different method of flying about. Yeah, yeah. And then we also heard from Max. Max writes in and says, Dear Robert and Julie, in the lucid dreaming episode, you discussed flying in dreams to be stiff. Although I've also experienced flying stiff in dreams, I'm usually able to steer the, the flying by moving my arms and legs. When I'm able to steer, I seem to fly much longer, probably because when flying stiff, I seem to crash as soon as I realize I'm flying. I think that when I realize I'm flying, my logic takes over and tells me that I cannot fly, resulting in the crash. Thanks for the great podcast and the hours of thoughts inspired by them. Max.
4: Those are really cool. I was just thinking about how we were talking about how logic is somehow, there's the idea that logic is still somehow online Mm -hmm. um, when you're lucid dreaming, which is not usually the case during dreams.
1: But we do see logic in these methods.
4: Well, and I was just thinking, too, my own experiences of flying, there are times that I plummet to the ground and I have to tell myself like no no you can do this and it's uh, and so I was just thinking like yeah maybe those are the times when you see the logic centers really coming online and you have to kind of say back off a little bit Hmm. you know I'm going to fly here
1: So let us know what you think. We would love to hear about your dreaming or lucid dreaming experiences. We would love to hear your thoughts on psychedelic substances and our journey into death. Like I said, there's a lot of gray area in there, and we'd be interested to hear people's different takes on it. And we're not opposed to hearing from people who have really dealt firsthand with preparations for death and staring down into life. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And on Twitter, we are Blow the Mind. And I should also point out that currently there is a really cool video series that we did it is called stuff to blow your kids mind 10 episodes short videos are about 6 minutes each
3: mm-hmm.
1: check them out watch them with your child or watch them steal all the information and then present the ideas as your own to your child mm-hmm. both uses are valid we put a lot of work into that and we're really proud of it also there is a photo contest called stuff to blow your mind you can reach it on the house stuff works homepage you can reach it on the house stuff works or stuff to blow your mind facebook pages Enter really cool photos that you've taken. Vote on other photos. Possibly win an iPad.
4: What? An iPad? Yeah, iPad. Wow, I can't do it. I know I've already checked into this. But you guys can, so check it out. Drop us a line, if you will, at blowthemind@discovery.com. At For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit
0: HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.